Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, November 7th, 2016, the Enemies of the People edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham, England. Joined as usual by my co-host, Scott Lucas, who is a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? <laughs> I'm exhausted. I'm still on Trump watch and it's killing me. Freshly <laughs> delivered to us from uh, uh, the People's Paradise of Salford, where he's been uh, consulting for the BBC. I tend to phone it in, but he goes all the way there for them. Uh, no Cristala this week, as she's out of the country, but never fear. In her place, we have increasingly frequent guest and fan favourite, Mark Goodwin, who's a lecturer in British politics. He also passes the key test of having a very different voice from the other two hosts, which is uh, the way we make this podcast manageable. How are you doing, Mark? I'm very well, thanks, Adam. I thought it was because of my searing political <laughs> insight, but now we know the real reason I'm here. We're, we're far too shallow for that sort of consideration here. Good to have you with us again. Uh, two topics this time. First, the High Court declares that the British government cannot take Britain out of the European Union without putting it to a parliamentary vote first. Cue pandemonium. But what does that actually mean for the future. Second, Rodrigo Duterte, president of the Philippines and Judge Dredd roleplay enthusiast, has proven to be everything in office that his critics feared, unleashing extrajudicial killings at home and hugging dictators abroad. What is to be done? Prime Minister Theresa May's government was delivered an unwelcome jab to the guts last Thursday by the British High Court, which decided it would be unconstitutional to invoke Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty without a vote of Parliament. Since that's a prerequisite for beginning the process of the UK's negotiated withdrawal from the European Union, as mandated by a referendum vote in June, the decision has thrown into disarray the government's plans to get the process underway in early 2017, inasmuch as anything currently in place can be characterised as rising to the level of a plan. Open questions now. Will the government appeal to the Supreme Court? Will Parliament provide the necessary vote of affirmation? If so, on what terms? Will the Labour Party, which is, lest we forget, the official opposition, support the vote for Article 50? Their leaders managed to articulate two very different positions on that in 24 hours this weekend. And if Brexit is still going to happen, for how long might this delay things? I was in Texas last week, uh, but the decision was followed by such an outpouring of outrage and bile from the Eurosceptic press. So are we still calling them that? I think uh, I think we might be. That I could hear it from there. Uh, the gold medal in a tough contest for most irresponsible coverage went to the Daily Mail for a front page branding the three judges who blocked Brexit, in their words, as enemies of the people and described them as follows, quote, one founded a European law group, another charged the taxpayer millions for advice, and the third is an openly gay ex-Olympic fencer. So... Mark, I think we need to talk about three things at least here. First of all, where this leaves us as regards the uh, steps towards the exit. Second of all, talk about some of that coverage of the decision, which was really something else. And third of all, perhaps get onto the larger issue that is the mind-boggling hypocrisy that Brexit and the debate around it seems to have fertilized everywhere in British politics. But let's, let's go for the perhaps the simplest, most technical question first. Surely MPs are not about to stand athwart this decision and actually overturn uh, the referendum result and pre prevent Brexit happening. They'd just be too terrified of their constituents, including the Labour ones, wouldn't they? Yeah, that's not what's happening. So um, this ruling doesn't say anything about whether Brexit will or won't happen. It is about how 
Article 50 is triggered and not even necessarily if uh, or when. It's just about process. So it's the case that uh, the strong sort of leave side are putting is that this is an attempt to subvert Brexit, uh, but uh, there's nothing in this ruling that, that has any impact on that necessarily. So the steps from here, uh, we're told the government intends to appeal. The appeal skips a stage right up to the Supreme Court. Uh, we should probably say at this stage, uh, given that we've got a couple of American experts on here, that the UK Supreme Court is nothing equivalent to the US Supreme Court, has never heard a case anything like this, was only established in 2009, uh, is not used to dealing with this kind of case at all. Um, but the next step, if there is an appeal, would be for the uh, uh, Supreme Court to hear it, would be the first time all the... Uh, judges on the Supreme Court have uh, heard a case mm. together. Now, the general view seems to be that the government's case for appeal is not that strong. Um, the ruling in the High Court rested on uh, a um, decision that prerogative powers can't be used principally because um, the uh, to invoke Article 50 involves changes in the rights of citizens and changes to domestic law. Uh, so it's a matter of legislation rather than uh, something that belongs to the international realm uh, in, uh, in terms of negotiating treaties, which is properly the province of, of mm -hmm. government and the prerogative powers. So that was the basis of the High Court's decision. Um, the general view, as far as I can tell, not being a lawyer, is that the case for appeal would not be very strong. Um, but there are intricacies there, and I wouldn't be absolutely amazed uh, if the Supreme Court did reach a different uh, conclusion. And do we know if they're going to appeal it yet or not? And there's a judgment call on their part because, I mean, if, if they think they're going to lose anyway and it's just going to delay things, they might just decide to crack on, mightn't they? They might do, but the, the uh, initial response was that they intended to appeal and sometimes been set aside uh, in early December uh, to hear the case. Uh, so... Uh, obviously that may have an impact on the timetable that was previously set for the triggering of Article 50, which is supposed to come by the end of March. So to hear the, to hear the case in full and uh, its uh, ruling and so on may impact on that timeline. But it seems that the plan is to appeal. Um, now, if that appeal is unsuccessful or if the appeal never emerges, the next step would be some process would have to be put in place for Parliament to have their say on the trigger of Article 50. Now, one of the aspects of that that's not clear yet is whether that will require new legislation, which seems to be, again, the view that most people take is that it will require legislation, it will require a bill to pass, or whether it could be done by some other means, such as a resolution uh, in uh, Parliament. Now, if it's the legislative route, uh, a bill would have to pass both houses, the Commons and Lords, before Article 50 could be... Uh, Invoked. Now, obviously, the British system is that the government drafts the law, but Parliament would have the opportunity to propose amendments. And this is uh, the avenue by which Parliament might have some influence on the timetable of Brexit and also perhaps, uh, or at least, of triggering Article 50 and the conditions that surround that. Mm -hmm. So, this would, that would be the, the opportunity would be to try and uh, table amendments uh, to any uh, bill that reaches the Commons there. I mean, to pass a bill in that time is quite a compressed uh, timetable by British standards. If you still want to trigger the article by the end of uh, March, there are some mechanisms. The government 
can use to shorten the timetable, particularly in the Commons. But in the Lords, it's more difficult for two reasons. One, there isn't a government majority. And two, you don't have the same um, ability to guillotine the debate mm-hmm. uh, in the Lords. So what do I expect uh, Parliament corporately might try to do is uh, not necessarily to go down the route of um, putting conditions on the content uh, or the, you know, asking the government to outline a particular position or what its red lines are or something like that. I think they will probably avoid that, but they may be able to get some concessions or conditions in terms of process and where mm. Parliament is involved subsequently further down the line where they have chances to say yes or no to things that come back from uh, negotiations. Mm. So I expect that that would be the strategy um, that MPs will take rather than opposing Brexit. Right, you're know, using it as some vehicle to do that. Because if we think this through, right, we have a whole lot of Tory MPs who wanted to leave in the first place, a bunch of others who may well have just said that they wanted to stay in because David Cameron was their yeah. boss and he told them to say that, and now yes. none of that's relevant anymore. A bunch of Labour people who probably left to their own devices would want to stay in, but who now know for a fact that their constituents voted to leave and who therefore will be taking their political lives in their hands to change it round. And a Labour leadership that I think, you know, there are those who would fight this point, but most of us think is ambivalent at best about the desirousness of staying in the European Union and has shown its customary uh, dog's breakfast-like talent uh, for articulating a clear position of what they intend to try and do. Uh, So with all of that being the case, it doesn't seem like Parliament has anything remotely resembling an organised plan of resistance to leaving the European Union in any form, does it? No, and I don't think... Even if all of those conditions weren't in place, it still, I think, would be extremely unlikely that it, this would be a, a bill that they would seek to block or defeat. Okay? I think what will happen, it's not about whether the vote will pass. I think it's very likely that a vote would pass, um, for all the reasons that you say. It, there may be marginal cases, uh, uh, well, maybe not so marginal, but certain cases where people can say, you know, uh, the area that I represent unambiguously supportive remain, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to you know, follow that through to its logical conclusion because this is who I represent. But uh, on the whole, I think this is much more about what concessions can be wrung out of the government uh, along the way. Now, what it does do, or what it may do, okay, is to give an avenue to soften Brexit, but I think more likely is what it will uh, produce is a slightly clearer picture of what the proper role for Parliament is going to be in in the Brexit process as it continues. So I think that's the most likely outcome as I see it at the moment. And I mean, Anand Menon, formerly of this parish, now a a professor at King's College in London and a a knower of much about these subjects, wrote a thing during the week that said during the first wave of uh, relieved pronouncements from Remainers to the effect that this might be a sign that the weather was changing, he said he thinks this is actually probably going to entrench and legitimise the the decision to leave in effect because by forcing the point, uh, what's now going to be achieved is a parliamentary vote that that makes it harder still to to potentially change course down the line. Yeah, I just think that's not on the table. I I just think basically the pass has been sold on Brexit I I don't think there's any avenue for a a serious um, attempt to 
subvert that or, you know, or even really delay it uh, by any great amount. I think what the best that we could, or best that the, uh, some of those people can get out of this is some clarity, some suggestion of who's responsible for what, what the process is going to be. I don't think it will affect content, and it certainly is not going to reach to the level of having any, uh, you know, uh, of keeping us in the EU, for example. Mm. Right, so I think we've, we, we've reached some level of clarity about that, or at least what we would like clarity about. Let's turn to the second of those questions, and this is where I think you, Scott, will, uh, will have some things to say, which is, you know, we all know that this referendum and the period after it and the debate that's followed has lured some very ugly illiberal sentiments in British society out from under the rocks where I think we thought they were more firmly stashed than it turns out they are. Um, you know, Stephen Bush, the writer for the, uh, the the New Statesman, wrote some pretty good stuff this week, uh, you know, talking about how the reaction the Daily Mail in particular produced to this decision, the way they characterized those judges that I, that I read out in the intro, was part of a general turn towards not just nativism, but towards some kind of idea of what's normal, effectively, at the expense of what's quote-unquote cosmopolitan. Um, you know, that, that, that there is some idea of the real Britain in same way as there is one of the real America that's starting to emerge here. And basically, if you fit a wide selection of characteristics ranging from homosexuality to fencing to, uh, <laughs> to, you, to an interest in European law, you are somehow uh, an alien interloper into British society, not fully grounded here. Um, are we right to be as concerned as I certainly was, even viewing it from a continent away, uh, about that general trend? Yeah. I mean, remember when we talked just recently after the Conservative Party conference about language that came out that I took to heart about second-class citizens within this country? And gentlemen, y'all were trying to ease my nerves at that point. I think, with respect... I think we were just calling you hysterical. Yeah, 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 possibly. Now now I realize at least I'm not on the front line of danger. Clearly, anybody who's an Olympic fencer who is an immigrant better be hiding because the deportation gay police are going to be coming after him. Have you ever taken millions from the government to advise them? Because that's the third category that apparently can get you into trouble. Mate, I I don't even think I've taken 50 pence from the government to advise them. I think we're safe there. Uh, Let me... Walk it into Although this. I am available. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, we will sell ourselves. Let me walk it into and answer your question by picking up what Mark said, which is extremely interesting, but to give you sort of an alternative starting point for this. Because, you know, I, I think if the government had a clear idea of what they were going to be doing, I don't think we would have even gotten into this mess. Because the government said, yeah, sure, we're going to go before Parliament. We're going to invoke Article 50. We're going to get a deal which means this in terms of trade, this in terms of the economy, this in terms of social rights. The starting point here is government doesn't know what the hell it's doing because it doesn't know how it's going to get this irreconcilable of we will pull out of the EU, we will restrict free movement, and at the same time we'll still have a single market. Because they don't know, they don't want to go to parliament because when you go to Parliament and say, we're going to invoke Article 50, you can get can pin down on those initial general questions, right? Mm-hmm. What does this mean? And they want to say, no, 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 we don't want to give away our negotiating position. Right, which, which, which flatters them by suggesting that they have, have a negotiating a position. Right. So I'd say it's, it's out of chaos and out of uncertainty mm-hmm. that you get then the high court coming in and say, well, no, you're going to have to go to Parliament, which is legally spot on. And then the government 
basically standing back and letting the high court become the scapegoat for all this. No, look, it's the government that should carry the can for this. But, of course, that's too easy. So the high court gets stigmatized, and then to get to what you're talking about, then here's all on the knock-on effect. Because people don't just simply say, we think the judges were wrong in the legal decision. It becomes this classification of, oh, maybe it's because, you know, he's a homosexual, which is very uncomfortable, like Donald Trump saying that in the States a few months ago, that there was a judge who shouldn't be allowed to hear the case against his university because he was a Mexican, mm-hmm. which he wasn't, but let's leave that for what it is. So here we've got a thief, someone who took millions from the government, apparently, someone who was a, uh, a homosexual, and someone who— And an Olympic fencer. An Olympic fencer. Do Don't not forget, forget that. That's, and, that's and, a very important part of the accusation here. And then, and then also the dreaded evil of anyone who dares to study European law. Right. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I can, I, can, I can see how that would have been a huge barrier to participating in this legal judgment about the question of Britain's constitutional relationship with Europe. We should definitely minimize the number of people with a background in European law involved in these matters. But of course, it, it's, it's all of that. And then it's that, you know, enemy of the people. And guys, draw your own historical parallels on people who invoke that type of thing. And we're not just talking about the Daily Mail here. We are talking about the Telegraph who dived in as well. Once supposedly a quality broadsheet, they're not anymore. They're basically a a tabloid under the guise of being slightly bigger. Mm -hmm. And it's like the government doesn't step up at that point. Liz Truss, where are you? Someone who kept talking about the independence of the judiciary. Right, who was the Lord Chancellor who's notionally the head of this whole system, whom one might have expected to step up and say some yeah. forthright things about how, okay, everybody take a breath, calm down. This is like, this is, this is not an appropriate way to talk about uh, judges making decisions unless we want to tear down the norms that keep the whole legal system afloat. But instead she said some pretty mealy mouthed stuff about the abstract importance of, uh, of the law uh, and absolutely nothing at all about the fact that, I mean, you would not have known there had been a specific targeted and bilious attack. Uh, from any particular direction, uh, just from her statement alone. It left all of that entirely implicit. And others have been chiming in as well. So Sajid Javid, for example, um, also a minister, uh, described it as an attempt to subvert or thwart the will of the British people, Mm -hmm. this uh, decision. So it's not that uh, Truss was particularly an outlier. It's a line that obviously um, the government has been prepared to... They think that's their strong suit. They think that's their best... uh, Uh, line of defense yeah but the line of defense now is demagoguery i mean let's just call it what it is because it's one and in in running up to brexit you know i wasn't a big fan of the language running before the referendum but at least the target was over there it was those europeans that you're targeting as well as let's be honest here those immigrants now they're not just targeting europe it's not just immigrants they're now targeting British institutions. Right. It's, it's, it's like a revolutionary situation where, first of all, you overthrow the outside power, yeah. then you've established the direction you want to go in, and then when it turns out not everyone at home is on board for that, you start identifying you know, uh, uh, fifth columnists and counter-revolutionary forces and all of this kind of thing until eventually you've, you've, you've whittled it down to the, 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 the core of loyalists and everybody else is not real somehow. I think as far as, as far as the mail goes, I mean, do we know they didn't have that headline ready? They, they run that story every week, don't they? <laughs> you know, uh, somebody, you know, it's just a word salad. But, um, you know, the mail obviously has form on this kind of thing. But I think there's something broader in play there. And, you know, uh, 
in the nature of populism what is 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 really kind of laid yeah. bare here and uh, you know one of uh, uh or one of the academics who who has written a lot on this Kasmoody, one of his the things that he wants to say about populism is that ultimately it's not just an anti elite um mood or an anti elite zeitgeist it's also an anti pluralist zeitgeist and an anti liberal zeitgeist and and uh it in- includes this uh, idea that um, uh, it's not just a demand to redistribute powers, but it, it is inherently an attack on the institutions of liberal democracy. It's a demand, really, to always get your own way. It's a demand, mm-hmm. or rather a claim, that reasonable people can't disagree. Mm-hmm. There is a real Britain. We know what real Britain thinks, and everybody else is a gay ex-Olympic fencer, mm-hmm. okay, and coded suspect, coded not real Britain. So there's something intrinsic to populism mm-hmm. uh, or th- this populist mood that's around globally in politics at the moment that is inherently anti-pluralist, inherently anti-liberal and not just anti-elite. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes me to the, the third of those points that I outlined at the beginning mm-hmm. about the sort of circus of hypocrisy that's now breaking out, that... I think we probably just have to accept now, don't we, that people want the end goals that they want here, leave or or remain. And everything else they say is basically just an instrumental appropriation of whatever arguments, procedurally, etc., they need to get them there. So, I mean, the most... The most full-blown version of it in, in this instance, and it's drawn all the guffaws that you would expect, is the parliamentary sovereignty was supposed to be the thing that, that this was all about. Mm-hmm. And now you have these people who are outraged at some British courts, which are the things they think should be making all the decisions, mm-hmm. not blocking Brexit, but basically saying Parliament has to decide it. But because that might potentially put a spanner in the works of the end result they want, all of that goes out the window and yeah. suddenly Parliament, the courts, all of it are, 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 you know, suspect because parliamentary sovereignty in British courts is just coded speech for that quote-unquote real British stuff, which means a right-wing agenda read in tooth and claw. But Remainers, you know, while generally a much better behaved bunch in terms of their social manners and certainly much more our cup of tea in terms of their, their, their social values are also... I think we would have to accept in parts of this argument being a tad disingenuous in terms of how they shop around for arguments about why this shouldn't happen. You know, whether it's because of Parliament's point of view or what the courts think or popular sentiment or democracy or whatever, mm-hmm. they blow hot and cold on how important any of those given things happen to be. Again, depending on whether they think it's going to carry them to the end result they want, which is you know, that they want a liberal country and they want it to be in the EU and things yeah. that don't go in those mm-hmm. directions you know, are problematic. So you know, maybe what we need to accept right now is that this is like going to be politics red in tooth and claw all the way from here on in and those of us you know such as myself perhaps who would want to sit on the side in a terribly desiccated genteel way and go okay whatever we do can we please try and do it in a level-headed and procedurally appropriate way and we're just going to get trampled beneath the hooves of the stampeding passions on on either side I, i i generally agree with that i'm not but i think it takes me back to my standpoint which is is if if we are going to at least assuage what's going on here, the onus is on the government, point blank. The onus is on the government to come up with a definition of what is it they are seeking by going 
with the invocation of Article 50. Uh, they have to come up with certain economic objectives, certain social objectives. They've got to come clean, by the way, in terms of, just to give you one, which is the status of non-EU residents inside this country. Mm-hmm. Um, as, long, as long as they delay, either because they just don't know what they're going to do, because they fear the economic consequences, because of the bureaucratic fights between min- ministries, this will continue. It is what it is. Um, the only alternative to that is that at some point someone calls out the government and says, look, you have no plans. There's nothing coming forward. If you have no plans, it's time to call time on this. Now, the Europeans are not going to do that for us. The problem is we don't have an organized party or group of parties that I think are in a position to do it at this point, which just does not give me any hope for the near future in terms of what we're walking into. Mm-hmm. I think it really does illustrate how fragile the British Constitution, such as it is, is once it's put under any pressure. Yeah. You know, it's something that it seems to be held together most of the time with, a, you know, duct tape and blue tack. And as long as you don't try and do anything with it, it's okay. But the minute that mm. it's put under any pressure, it's clear that even though uh, the institutions are quite weak, but also the norms that underpin mm. it are quite weak, and uh, there aren't those voices in British politics at the moment, which there really have been for a long time, who, who are prepared to stand up for um, liberal uh, institutions and, you know, the rule of law and those kind of things. You know, we see the collapse of the Liberal Democrats is one sign of that. The, uh, you know, the sort of liberal cosmopolitan wing of the Labour Party is very much on the back foot at the moment. And there's nobody to stand up for these uh uh, institutions or, or these norms and it's it's it really is exposing how fragile that system is once you put it under any test any any stress test on the mm. british constitution it starts to fall apart well it's hard enough to keep a constitution on the road when someone has taken the trouble to write it down uh, when it basically yeah. consists of a bunch of people saying well you know here are some examples of how we used to do it before yeah. <laughs> and that's basically the sum total of your constitutional legal reasoning uh it certainly puts you in a precarious place Okay, it's time for Number of the Week, where we take a number and a news story and make the argument that they are somehow linked. Uh, Let's start with Mark. Okay, so uh, my Number of the Week is uh, 1610, or 1610, which is the year of the case of proclamations. The year of our Lord. The uh, year of AD. I know, Domino, yes. Uh, the year of the case of proclamations, which was cited in the judgment on the Article 50 uh, ruling. And the case of proclamations establishes the principle that, amongst other things, the king by his proclamation or other ways cannot change any part of the common law or statute law or the customs of the realm, which was uh, ultimately the principle on which it was deemed that uh, uh, the government could not uh, invoke Article 50 using prerogative power. So the, the case of proclamations is a landmark case, amongst other things, supposed to lay the foundation for the principle of judicial review, as uh, in the recent case. And the case, I'm not going to pretend I knew this before uh, the Article 50 ruling, but the case refers to uh, the right of the Crown to impose import duties, tariffs, if you like, for the purpose of protection of domestic industries from foreign competition, or what the EU does. <laughs> so uh, 400 years it's taken as we've been wrangling with this question uh, of uh, 
import duties, tariffs, whether we can protect uh, domestic industry and foreign trade. Uh, and you sometimes wonder whether we've got any further. Hmm. I'd be interested to know if a comprehensive list of the customs of the realm exists, and if so, where fencing lies vis-a-vis that. Perhaps <laughs> yeah. that's one of the uh, one of the dicey areas that we've entered into. It's none of the king's business. That's what we've established. <laughs> Scott, what do you got for us? Sixty. By the time, dear listener, that you hear this, we hopefully will know who is the U.S. president is, and hopefully it'll be Hillary Clinton, just as a by the by. But I wanted to bring the word number 60 in in relation to one episode in the U.S. election because it could have wider implications. It refers to the protocol, which is that the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, is not supposed to make an intervention, uh, an announcement regarding any investigation or inquiry within 60 days of the vote. Yet that protocol was broken 10 days ago, in other words, 11 days before the election, uh, by FBI Director James Comey, who suddenly said that the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, uh, her server, would be reopened. Now, it just so happens that hours ago, the FBI has now declared all of a sudden they have magically gone through many tens of thousands of emails uh, on the computer of uh, Clinton's senior aide, Huma Abedin, and her estranged husband, the former U.S. congressman and scoundrel Anthony Weiner. He is very estranged indeed. Yeah, and he is the one who was being investigated for sexting young women. Uh, which very led, young women. Uh-huh, which led to this announcement. Now, the FBI has given the all clear. They suddenly have decided a day before the election that, oh, well, no, 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 there's no classified information, no reason to reverse our decision, which gave Hillary Clinton the all clear from the summer. But the damage of the political intervention has been done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's be very clear, there was no reason from the standpoint of law enforcement. Uh, Indeed, this actually broke FBI protocols to come out and make this announcement because when you announce an investigation, you could prejudice information, which would later then be used in a prosecution or a trial. The question of why Comey did it, we don't know for sure, but we can play connect the dots, and chances are is that he probably was scared that there would be a leak, possibly from within the FBI, to the Trump campaign that said that these emails had been found, he decided to cover his backside, fearing that if he did not say anything, he would be accused of protecting Clinton. He makes Mm. the announcement. And the process blew his own backside off with a double-barreled rifle. Absolutely right. And threatened at one point, I think, to blow the campaign up, whoever you think should win it, but by the fact that he had effectively skewed this, that the headlines were now all about Clinton's emails, the pressure were on her campaign as Mr. Trump was closing in the polls. That's a wider precedent that's troubling because we've just been talking about British institutions. Here you have the chipping away of an American institution, fearing that there would be some popular rage against it, that it actually breaks very well-founded protocols uh, in order not to tilt an election. Mm -hmm. It also taps into that now that the FBI is given the all clear, perhaps predictably Mr. Trump has declared that the FBI is part of the entire rigging of the election against uh, the Donald. Uh, The entire American system is for Hillary, and that therefore if Trump loses, or has lost by the time you hear this, that people should not accept the election, not accept the result, which would be fairly unprecedented in American democracy. So all in all, the number 60 
uh, is a my not so positive number of the week. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with the American theme also. Uh, I think there's going to be plenty of time for us to discuss American things on the podcast in the future because this is coming out a. Uh, at the same time as the election is actually happening. Bad idea to make any in-depth moves when it comes to the content of the result because we've been proven wrong so swiftly. But the number I want to go with is 538, uh, which is the number of electoral college votes, but it is also the number of Nate Silver's website, uh, formerly a subsection of the uh, the New York Times, now now an independent one, the purpose of which is to take forward data journalism and the use of analytics to, to, to improve the quality of punditry. Basically, the initial insight was that you had a lot of people spouting off the top of their heads about what they felt in their water was going to happen in an election in a given year uh, and then paying no consequence or no price for being consistently wrong all the time. This This, this project was about trying to take the polling data from all the different polls, aggregate that, combine it with what we know from the admittedly limited number of samples in history, and try and extrapolate from that you know, a somewhat pseudo-quantitative but nevertheless uh, evidence-based estimate of what the likely result of the election would be. And we're now at that point, in, as, as we have been in a few election cycles, where everybody is uh, in a massive cluster fight with the pollsters, uh, uh, kicking and scratching and punching based on the idea that whatever they want to hear is not coming, is not forthcoming. They either think that uh, people are complacently overstating the level of Hillary Clinton's support or wildly understating the level of Hillary Clinton's support. And they're saying all of this off the back of, you know, a grab bag of theories about how either people lie to pollsters or there are voters the pollsters don't pick up or the pollsters weighted, weighted wrongly. And there have been mistakes, of course, in the past in polling. And this may be a case because Hillary Clinton has a lead of about three or four points, we are told, where there could well be, uh, in either direction, a misestimation of support. But I just want to put a marker down, I suppose, for the idea that polling is hard (laughs) and working out what the future is going to be based on this stuff is hard. And at least what 538 are attempting to do is accumulate something that resembles evidence and explain the process they're applying to that evidence to come up with some kind of speculation that has grounding. And the people who are attacking them for not having a sufficiently solid evidence base for what they're saying, all of their positions seem to amount to because I can imagine a totally different thing (laughs) happening and you're saying it won't. So who are you to do that? And that is just, um, you know, I just have no patience for it. None at all. It is per- anything could happen. Anything could happen. Lots of things that the pollsters are not predicting could happen. They may be wrong in all sorts of ways, but we'll know why they were wrong because they've explained with evidence their reasoning. Pointing out that a possible alternative futures involving polling error could happen does not mean you're going to be right if those, thing, if those things do unfold any more than if I cut open the guts of a cow and look at them and then say that you know, Hillary Clinton's going to win by three points in Ohio and that she does, that I was right. That's not how it works. You have to show your work if you're going to make these kind of arguments and it just drives me crazy the number of people who are out there simultaneously criticizing this really difficult to do thing and producing uh, a soothsayer-like nonsense as their supposed counterpoint while hoping they'll get to crow about being right afterwards. No, you won't. That's not how this works. (laughs) 
Back in June on this very podcast, we discussed the fact that the Philippines had just elected Rodrigo Duterte, longtime mayor of the city of Davao, as its new president. It will be fair to say that we were at that time concerned. During his bid for office, Duterte showed off an erratic temperament, crass misogyny, and casual attitude to extrajudicial violence that made Donald Trump seem like James Madison. Proudly sporting the nickname The Punisher, he promised to take the gloves off in a violent crusade against drug dealers and users, something he'd already employed death squads to achieve in the streets of Davao during his reign there, according to the witness testimony of those directly involved. He since lived up to that promise, with more than 3,000 killed since he took office in drug-related police operations or by hitmen, 18,000 arrested, and tens of thousands more surrendered to the police, whatever that means. The United States, with which the Philippines has historically had a close relationship since its colonial occupation in the early 20th century has been, as you might hope, critical of human rights abuses under Duterte's leadership. Duterte's responded to this by referring to President Obama as a son of a whore, and more seriously by making a public show of warming relations with China and Russia. On a visit to Beijing, he announced his, quote, separation from the United States and told his hosts, I've realigned myself in your ideological flow, and maybe I will also go to Russia to talk to President Vladimir Putin and tell him that there are three of us against the world, China, Philippines, and Russia. It's the only way. I'm sure, I'm sure China and uh, Russia felt very reassured to hear international affairs characterized in that way. Uh, this hasn't gone down great with a large chunk of elite society back home in the Philippines uh, who regard military ties with the U.S., including important U.S. bases there as key to their strategic role in the world, and who probably aren't thrilled about having Judge Dredd comic strips unfold in their streets either. So, Scott, um, is it just me or are the presidents getting crazier? Um, we spent plenty of time on this podcast, especially when Kristal is here, uh, lamenting the boorish nationalism and narcissism of Erdogan in Turkey. But this guy's even worse. Um, you know, the dilemma here seems to be that if the U.S. criticizes him uh, for human rights, then that's the spur for him to turn away to others overseas. But you know, if you don't, well, you know, got to draw the line somewhere, and surely this is it. Yeah, but let's not go overboard. There. Plenty of precedent for this. Remember Idi Amin back in the 1970s? Not yeah. personally, but uh, if you're willing to remind us. There you go. Well, they, you know, the, the leader of, uh, of Uganda, who was not exactly noted for very rational, calm behavior and was quite flamboyant. Um, you can think about, uh, oh, President Mobutu, for example, uh, African leader who quite celebrated in the demise of his opponents. And you could even think about one of Duterte's uh, predecessors, Ferdinand Marcos, and his lovely wife, Imelda, who once sang to me, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, just I was doing an interview with her, which was a bit disconcerting. Uh, and no, I didn't get a chance to see her shoe collection for which she was renowned. Uh, I thought you might have given her some to produce this. Uh, this no, cheerful. it was Did completely you? spontaneous. Just by talking to her, you get a song. So if anybody, she's still around, folks, if you want to get one. Uh, I don't mean to make light of what Duterte's done. What I'm sort of saying by setting this up is, is that there have been all kinds of nasty authoritarian leaders, and there will continue to be, but I'm interested in the context around what is happening here. It used to be in, oh, those halcyon days of the Cold War that some scholars actually yearned for, you know, the order, that there was some type of leverage on these authoritarians because of economic and military aid. You know, the, the Soviets could come in and think they could get them on their side and temper their behavior, no matter how nasty they were. The Americans thought they could do the same thing. 
and off we go, whether we're talking about Africa, Middle East, and Asia. And indeed, this played out, as you mentioned, in the Philippines with the fact that the American military bases were a key part of the Filipino economy and continue to be quite significant. We're not in the Cold War anymore, not yet at least. Uh, and so despite the fact that Duperte's gone and made this whole appeal, which is, come on, China, come by, you know, come on, Russia, let's stand up against the evil imperialist U.S. Yeah, it kind of reads as a sort of um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance well, Kid kind of invitation. You can just imagine their, uh, yeah. their faces when being invited. Just the, just the two of us, though, just the, yeah. th- the three of us against them all, boys, let's mm-hmm. go. You're like, okay, don't call us, we'll call I you. I think it's more Scooby doing Scrappy, do boy. He's going to love hearing this podcast, <laughs> isn't he? He'll be after you in a heartbeat. Yeah, we're, so, we're, we're, we're narrowing our holiday destination yeah. possibilities by the week of this. But it's like, <laughs> didn't but, occur to me as a side effect of this, uh, this podcast. It's like, dude, you know, this isn't just Scrappy and Scooby. This is just so 1980s what you're doing. I mean, it is. China is interested not in just simply standing isolated with the Philippines. They maybe have economic interest in the Philippines. They may see advantage there. But they also have a wider relationship with other powers in the Asia-Pacific region. Russia, which is picking fights in various places, hello Eastern Europe, hello Middle East, may not be inclined to pick yet another fight. Uh, So Duterte's got more recent predecessors like Hugo Chavez, who, of course, could come out with quite a florid line. You know, Mm -hmm. the stench of the devil about George Bush. Mm -hmm. Not quite as nasty internally as Duterte is. Uh, at least not with directly killing people as opposed to grinding an economy into the dust. Uh, But I think Chavez was much more calculating. Uh, Again, this is not to make light of what's happening. This is not a very good internal time. But I think what we're going to see is a reconfiguration, which will be both the way that various powers relate to the Philippines and also groups within. Because here's the difference now between that of 20 years ago, and that is there is an Asian-Pacific economic region in which one power going its own way, going just a bit batshit crazy, is not good for the whole. North Carolina, North Carolina, <laughs> North Korea is already doing it, and do you want the Philippines doing it as well? So um, it is... How is early voting going in North, <laughs> in, in North Korea at the moment? I think... Uh, <laughs> I think Kim Jong Un is probably po- odds on. Yeah, they've got one. fewer polling stations in some of the uh, minority districts this time. Yeah, I, th- I think basically he's won 102 percent of the vote in early voting. Uh, mm-hmm. But to get back to Philippines and your original question, uh, we will see leaders like this. It just so happens Duterte has grabbed the headlines because he is particularly nasty. Uh, but I think we'll see realignments that are part of a more fluid 21st mm-hmm. century approach. Um, to try to at least limit the damage he can do outside the Philippines, if not necessarily within the country. Mm-hmm. I, sorry. I, I wonder if you think that there's something going on here um, with maybe Russia or China forming a sort of anti-Western, anti-liberal axis, and that's emboldening these kind of, you know, your Erdogan's and, and these kind of people uh, more. That's interesting because you'll keep hearing about, for example, BRICS, you know, know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. But that that tends to be invoked more now by the anti-imperialist quite often from Western countries than from those countries themselves. The Chinese themselves are actually very reticent on issues involving U.S. interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Direct confrontation is not what they're looking for. India certainly is not looking and spoiling for a fight. Mm-hmm. as they host Theresa May to talk about post-Brexit British trade. Uh, Brazil, 
does not and see its future. And restriction yeah. on immigration as well. Yeah. <laughs> the whole idea of the BRIC setup is sort of a holdover of people who want to play the anti-imperialist card with reinvoking the Cold War framework. Um, and I, I just think it doesn't apply. What answer we have in terms of reconfigurations, that isn't a simple case. Because now you're talking about multiple actors calibrating in multiple ways. But I would say that the framework, if I go back to, isn't the anti-imperialist one. It's how you get economic benefit. And that'll probably be more from finding a consensus of interest amongst Asian countries than uh, from Duterte leading us on a Pied Piper's fight against Washington. I mean, China wants and has gone some way, apparently, at this Beijing meeting to, uh, to, towards achieving one pretty specific thing from the mm. Philippines, which is that it's one of the many countries with whom they have a... Uh, a dispute about uh, uh, territory, mm-hmm. and they've wanted for a long time to have that be dealt with bilaterally rather than through international institutions. And apparently, much to the surprise of his advisors at this meeting, uh, where he made that pronouncement, Duterte has agreed to that, no. uh, which will no doubt add to the number of people back in his capital city who are, you know, not thrilled about the fact that they seem to have someone who flies solo and on a very unpredictable uh, uh, basis. But I, I agree with you about the Scrappy-Doo point, for sure, that, you know, the idea that, the idea that they would uh, go beyond that kind of potential transactional benefit to see this as someone who you would want to hook your credibility to or indeed empower to drag you into something you know, it seems to me to hugely underestimate the amount of circumspect caution that prevails in, in, in Chinese political circles. You know, I, I think, you know, if I pull my realist glasses on, as I am sometimes wont to do, and try and consider what, what the United States can do in a situation like this, there is sometimes a case, I think, for minimizing fuss when it comes to a government's ugly domestic side, if that's the only way to secure its cooperation in domestic or in international matters where, where that's important. And, you know, China's a pretty good case in point. You know, China does all sorts of terrible things at home, but, you know, the, the nature of their world role is such that it is obviously in the interest of the United States not to make that agenda item number one and, and, and ruin the whole relationship at the back of it. But I, with this guy, I, don't, I can't see any way towards that being a good play for a couple of reasons. For one thing, he seems to be positively inviting domestic discord and possibly overthrow uh, in, in due course. Uh, and being seen to have tolerated his craziness will will win very little credit in the bank in due course that happens. And second, he, he's just not solid enough, is he? Um, you know, if you want to mortgage your moral values for the strategic boon of an alliance with someone, you want it to be with some solid structure of actors and institutions within a country that are prepared to deal transactionally with you and who you feel you can rely on to deliver on their end. Um, you know, whereas this sort of mercurial self-regarding jackass uh, you know is exactly the kind of person who no matter what concessions you think you've made to him or what deal you think you've done with him could turn around and do the opposite tomorrow because he feels like it uh, and everything goes you know you 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 uh, sold the moral farm for, for for nothing so better to just tough it out and hope before too long his domestic enemies uh, catch up with him right Right, I think so. I mean, the, there would actually be a logical answer here. You, you go to the who are, where have been the Philippine institutions that have provided continuity for better or worse? Well, one of them is the military. Mm-hmm. Now you can't bring the military back into power because it have, you know that's what they supposedly had the People's Power Revolution in the 1980s, not just to get rid of Marcos, but to say we want a civilian government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the military, in conjunction with other institutions, civilian institutions, Philippines. You maintain links with them. You maintain. You keep those lines open. 
And like you say, you play it long and wait for the movement. Movement movements against leaders have to come from within. They can't come from outside. I mean, he's very popular, kinda, in that way that people who you know. It reminds me a little bit. I mean, he's much more crass and vulgar, and he's got less money. But it it, it has a kind of uh, uh, tax and shinawat kind of feel about it in a way. Mm. Like when you've got like a person with a lot of popularity in the country, yeah. but pretty much the entire elite just takes one look at him and goes, "Jesus Christ, this guy can't really be the president, can he?" And you can you can outrun that for a while yeah. but i just don't know unless you start liquidating that elite which you know i guess happens sometimes mm. um but is extreme uh, i don't know how long you, you you can keep your grip on a country where you you, you know your whole raison d'etre in politics is to constantly be kicking all the other power centers in your society for fun so dear leader or dear dear, dear listeners in case by the time you listen to this we have another upstart president named Donald Trump going to talk about how the U.S. will ally with China and Russia against the rest of the world. Please be patient and don't try to overthrow him immediately. <laughs> I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. You can leave us a rating or a comment there, which we'd really appreciate, which helps others discover the pod. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone's ever actually done that, but I keep saying it every week, and I believe it might be possible to, to, to make it happen. Um, you can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview, and uh, see your article links and post your own comments there. Please recommend us, share us on social media, draw the attention of your informed, erudite, and interested friends to, uh, to, to what we do, because that's how people often end up listening to things for the first time. Our participants today have been Scott Lucas. Where can people um, mainline your important thoughts, Scott? I'm always mainlining on Twitter at scottlucas underscore EA. And camped out at the news and analysis site EA Worldview, which is eaworldview.com. Mm-hmm. Where uh, a variety of links to your no doubt numerous media appearances over the course of the next couple of days uh, will appear, and possibly mine. Who knows? Stranger things have happened. Mark? Yeah, no media appearances. No one's interested in what I have to say. But Twitter, uh, if you do want to have a look, I'm on Twitter at Mark R. Goodwin. I'm Adam Quinn, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook. If you're looking for me there, that's where I recommend you find me. If you're insistent that Twitter is the only medium through which you will do business, then you can find me at Adam James Quinn on there. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon, uh, hopefully not from a post-apocalyptic, post-Trump election bomb shelter. We hope you will be too. Bye. Bye.